morning, and welcome to episode 749 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined as always by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus, and we have a guest today. So this is a Dodgers-related podcast, and it's been a rough week for the Dodgers. Last Thursday, of course, they were eliminated from the playoffs. And on Friday, John Heyman reported that Zach Greinke would be opting out of his contract, which was not a surprise, but maybe not the thing that Dodgers fans wanted to read the day after they were eliminated from the playoffs. And the day after that report, we saw another report that Stan Conti, the team's longtime vice president of medical services and head trainer, had announced his resignation. And we had Stan on last year, last May, to talk about his research into injuries and how teams study injury risk, and we wanted to talk to him again. Now that he is a free man or an unattached man, we wanted to have him back to ask about some more recent developments. So, hey, Stan, thanks for coming back. Yeah, I think I like the word uh, unattached as opposed to unemployed, so that's, that's nice. <laughs> well, it was by choice, so so what was your yes. reason for resigning now? Well, I think, uh, you know, being the head trainer uh, in a professional baseball team uh, takes a huge amount of time. I don't know that a lot of the fans know what athletic trainers have to do during the baseball season. Uh, It's about 69 hours a day, seven days a week. It really um, starts in February and goes every day. Uh, So-called off days are typically not off days for for the medical staff and then, you know, go hopefully through late October, and then the next day start the off-season, which is a lot more involved than it used to be. So I've been doing that for a while, and I uh, wanted to do the research uh, into in baseball injuries and kind of get a better handle on those things. And uh, it just got to be a point where um, unless someone was going to make a 27-hour day, I just wasn't going to be able to do all the things that I wanted to. And uh, so at some point, you just have to say, you know, what is it that I want to concentrate on and uh, the research is uh, what came through and uh, so that's uh, that was the main reason that I left and uh, in order to really get a little deeper and spend more time on uh, looking at these baseball injuries which just continue to pile up yeah there's always it seems like there's always a clash between whether you can get more done inside of an organization or inside of an industry or somewhat removed from it do you anticipate any disadvantages to not being uh, attached to a team and not having yeah. the access? Yeah, that, that is a really good question. Uh, you know, I think well, part of the reason uh, that I haven't done this sooner is that uh, uh, you do have access to a lot of information. Um, and I worked a lot with uh, Major League Baseball uh, in regards to research committees and those types of things. And the access to certain data uh, you can't get when you're not associated with a team. Um, so that that sort of kept me around for a few more years. But um, I probably am still going to be working with a lot of the research committees uh, in Major League Baseball, and we'll have some access to that information. But sometimes it's just a matter of spending the time crunching the data that you do have and looking at things. And thanks to people like yourselves and Baseball Perspectives and other websites, it's amazing the amount of data you can uh, accumulate just on public sites uh, in, in baseball. It's um, it's really a mountain of information. and. So um, there is some issues in regards to access to certain data, uh, but I felt like this was a good time to do it. Is there a flip side of that where there's some kind of conflict if you're someone who's just doing research and trying to bring all this to light and 
trying to prevent injuries for all players, and yet you're working for a team that derives some advantage from knowing more than everyone else knows. So was there a kind of conflict that you wanted to free yourself of, or was that not really a problem? Well, it wasn't really a problem. Um, you know, if you work for the organization, then if um, you have the information, you, you share it with the organization, obviously, in order to do your job. I mean, my uh, search for, for answers in regards to the injuries on research was really to be able to do medical risk assessments on these players. In other words, give that idea at that particular point in time uh, what we thought the probability was of a player going forward and staying healthy for a year. And uh, that came, you know, hand in glove with my job. Um, we still published several articles. In fact, we've had three articles published this week, this year, on different subjects, Tommy John uh, specifically. But um, so we're able to actually take those things out. I think you see that it's not really too much of a conflict. Uh, there are, if you do get the secret plans, uh, you have to keep them to yourself and keep the organization. But it's not a big issue. Um, no one uh, within the Dodgers there really restricted me from giving out information other than stuff that was specific to a player. Mm -hmm. So when a player leaves a team or an executive leaves a team, everyone reviews their time with the team and cites their stats and their best trades and their best signings. So what would the version of that be for you if you had to talk about your highlights with the team, whether it was, you know, keeping a guy on the field or recommending a guy that you thought would stay on the field or what are the, right. the high points? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of rehabs that we did uh, that, uh, that we're pretty proud of uh, in regards to getting players back. And I think probably the one that pops up the, uh, the quickest is, you know, Zach Granke and his fractured cow collarbone um, uh, and his rehab that took about four weeks that typically takes about eight to ten weeks um, and getting him back and having him be able to perform as high a level as he did. I think the other one is Clayton Kershaw um, in uh, last year when he uh, tore his lat muscle uh, when we went to Australia and um, that's a typical you know two and a half three month uh, injury and we got him back in about five weeks, and he had a pretty good year last year and won the So Young and MVP. So those kinds of ones that are sticking out, that stick out, um, you know, the, those are somewhat what you're measured by. I think uh, at the end of the day, you know, I think people start to look at the disabled list, uh, which I think we should probably talk about at some point, uh, which is really not a really good system to grade medical teams on. Um, because there's so many different factors that go into a player being placed on the DL. And there are certain inherent risks that we take with players. We know those risks going in. And um, uh, there's a trade-off in regards to how good the player is and the upside on the baseball side. And so we, we, we're in a high-risk uh, states game where you end up doing that. And, uh, sometimes it doesn't work out or the probability actually is right and there's more likely a chance that they're going to get hurt than not. So I think uh, I think some teams are now, and maybe the media too, are looking at disabled list days and number of guys on the DL as a uh, as an indicator of whether the medical staff is good or bad. I think that's probably unfair generally, but uh, you have to use something. Uh, uh, I tell people all the time that a manager 
is uh, retained or fired um, by wins and loss, yet he only has a small fraction of what actually goes into wins and losses. So, but he's responsible and accountable, so he kind of is the guy that is taking a look at. And I think uh, the medical department is probably in that same type of situation. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because a week or so ago, the Nationals dismissed their whole training staff, had had an athletic trainer, an assistant trainer, and strength and conditioning coach, and obviously they had a disappointing season and injuries were a big part of that, but I was wondering how... How likely to be scapegoated a medical staff is? I don't know anything about their medical staff specifically, but yeah. for instance, when we see a team that doesn't hit and the hitting coach gets fired, we say, well, right. you know, someone had to go and maybe the hitting coach had right. something to do with it, but who knows? It could have just been completely out of their control. So does that happen just as much to medical staffs? I think it's happening more. Uh, I don't think it's happened in, in the past as much, but I do think um, when people look at things, uh, sometimes they believe that change uh, is something that might improve a specific area, and the personnel that are doing it, I think, you know, are responsible and accountable. It's not always fair, but that's kind of the way the world turns in regards to that. And, uh, uh, and you know, this kind of gets us back to the, the absolute importance, and maybe the primary importance of Baseball right now is the injuries and how it affects everyone. You, you're seeing managers who couldn't win uh, because they had a high level number of injuries um, and they got fired. And so uh, it, it's I think behooves us to be able to sit back and say, well, what exactly going on in injuries? So injuries are sort of like the weather. Everyone sort of bitches about them, but not much you can do about it. Although if you knew it was going to rain, you might take an umbrella. It might be some protective things that you could do. So, um, and I think that part of the research aspect of all this stuff is to try to get a little bit deeper and being a little bit more accurate and more scientific in regards to doing the, the risk assessments and doing looking at probabilities and building your team based on that, as well as the talent. You noted that the disabled list is just one aspect of, of health, and that while we're you know aware in ways that we weren't 10 or 15 years ago which teams have had the most disabled list, I, I, I don't think we're really anywhere close to having an idea about uh, which teams are most affected by uh, fatigue or by lingering injuries or the sorts of things that drag a player's batting average from 280 down to 270 in a way that we might just brush off as noise. So this question that I'm going to ask you, I wouldn't, I, I don't know, I wouldn't ask anybody else because it's probably completely impossible, but I feel like you might actually be plausibly qualified to answer it. Do you have a sense of how many wins, like in your own head, do you have an opinion of how many wins a good training staff is worth compared to a, a you know, a, maybe an average one? And of those wins, how many would you say are keeping guys off the DL? And how many would you say are keeping guys performing at their highest or at least at as high as could be expected level uh, throughout a long year? Sounds like you're trying to develop a, a war for athletic trainers. Uh, well, but, uh, I'm wondering. Yeah, I'm wondering what your guess yeah. for that war for athletic trainers. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, um, it's hard. It, that, that, that's a really good but hard question to answer in regards to numbers. You know, uh, I would tell you that uh, if you look at some of the injuries on some teams, you know, the uh, the relative war is probably really 
six to eight games at least. And it depends, of course, where the injuries occur. And, but as we know, that starting pitchers are probably the most in, not probably they are the most injured players, which uh, account for a lot of, of the overall uh, wins and losses of a team. The starting rotation, and you see those those are guys that typically have a higher WAR. But um, so I think that you know, and I think the reverse is true too. That you're looking at seven or eight games. Um, on negative column if uh, the team is not healthy. Um, so I think uh, the makeup of the me- medical team and who's doing it does have an impact on that. Um, they may have a bigger impact in the off season and in spring training uh, and being involved in uh, player selection uh, than they are actually in treatments and rehabs. Um, but if you got a player back uh, that, you know, if you look at Clayton Kershaw, uh, you know, who could have a war of 10 or so, um, and you lose him for two months, you lose all that, those stats and those wins, uh, those two months, and getting him back in two months instead of three months makes a big difference too. Then complicating the issue is what you also alluded to, and that is guys who are hurt and are not performing. And what you do with those particular guys, do you DL those guys or do you play them hurt? Is an 80% Justin Turner better than 100% of somebody else. And and those are factors that go into it. And if you keep playing him, does the performance go down or does he eventually end up being disabled much longer than he would have if he would have done that and rested him and done things. I also think uh, that you brought up also with this, the idea of in-season management of, of an injury. Um, and uh, I, I just talked about Justin Turner, and I'll talk about him again because Justin Turner you know, played with a bad knee for really second half of the season at least, uh, how we rested them, when we gave him rest. Uh, Don Mary and I spent a lot of time together each day saying where we were going to give him rest to do two things. One, keep his knee from getting worse, and two, to keep his performance up. And so we were able to do that pretty well, uh, knowing what he had wrong with his knee, whether that was going to be something that uh, was going to affect him career-wise and whether we could play through that safely. And, you know, getting it through the season. And um, and there's a price to pay for that just in terms of having to be surgery tomorrow morning. So uh, how you manage those things in the season are big, too. I still think the biggest impact probably is still in the offseason when the, when the GM is putting together his team and how he puts his team together from a portfolio of risk in regards to injury. Did I answer your question? It was a long answer. Yes. As far as an unanswerable question can be answered, you did very well. <laughs> um, so at this time of year, we're we're always kind of trying to puzzle out why certain players are not playing, or you know why a certain guy is used out of the bullpen instead of the rotation. And a lot of the time, we find out later that there was some hidden injury that we didn't know about that played into that decision. So. At any one time, how many guys on a 25-man roster are dealing with something that significantly impairs their performance that we don't know about? Probably half. Wow, I would mm-hmm. think. Yeah, huh. uh, and, and you have to you have to um, quantify a little bit significantly right. affected their performance. Um, so you know. Uh, and also, um, and this is something that's not talked about, and I don't want to put too much emphasis on it, but there are times when people actually get on in, in slumps, whatever a slump it is, but the performance goes down, um, and all of a sudden they remember they have 
a little soreness somewhere. And so that gives them a, a, a way out of their slump. Um, or for a reason for their slump, I should say. So there's parts of that, and, but, you know, guys who are regular players, guys who have, you know, position players who are over 400 plate appearances in a season, uh, starters who have, have thrown, you know, 20 to 30 starts, relievers who have 40, 50, uh, even 60 um, um, game appearances, uh, all those guys are dealing with some issue, um, and that's why it's a pretty busy place in the training room. Um, some of it is maintenance stuff and keeping things going. Other things are, are more serious and need rest or uh, different things to try to get get them on the field. And sometimes you'll see a guy take two, three, three, two or three days off. Uh, we did that with Justin Turner um, about a month ago. We had to give him four days off where he just couldn't play pitch hit or anything to let things settle down and he was able to continue to play. And the estimate that you uh, that you gave, is does that go much higher at, by this point in the year or is it pretty much consistent from day one to now that they're in constant yeah. pain and disruption? Yeah. Well, you know, again, significance is, is an issue, but, you know, I would tell you that if you walk through any major league uh, training room in September, um, let's say August because you don't have the call-ups, is almost everybody has something. The question is how significant is it and what they're playing with. The manager and I, Donnie, would, would sit together you know, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and kind of go over the list of who he needs to stay away from, who needs a day, who would come out early if we had a game that was a blowout one way or the other. Who do we rest uh, in that way, too? So these guys are dealing with a lot of things. I mean, you talked about, I think uh, Sam brought up fatigue, and baseball, from a health standpoint, is all about recovery. I mean, 162-day games in 183 days. This isn't football where the collisions and the injuries occur that way. These are, these are injuries of fatigue, um, typically in overuse. So uh, these guys have to go through this all the time, one, at, one day after another. Uh, and things start to break down, so things start to hurt, and things get injured. Uh, so the fatigability is one of the factors that may be the most difficult to um, actually evaluate and understand um, and how you give them recovery enough once they are fatigued. Now, there's a ton of uh, high-tech companies that are coming out trying to measure fatigability, Catapult, some other ones and uh, that that have worked in European soccer and European football and soccer that are being used in the NBA and uh, different sports. Uh, but baseball is a little bit different when it comes to fatigue. Uh, it's not cardiovascular. And, you know, when you look at a pitcher, um, how do you tell he's fatigued in the seventh inning? Uh, number of pitches um, or his mechanics change or his velocity goes down. Uh, how do you measure that? Um, and that's a real next-generation thing that's going to come is more accurately and objectively measuring fatigue. And then before someone actually gets fatigued, you rest them so you prevent the injuries associated with it. Yeah, and I, I know the Dodgers worked with Kitman Labs, and there are all these different companies doing various body tracking and wearable technology. Is that at a point where it's producing tangible benefits or is it still sort of at the intriguing technology with a lot of promise, but little proof stage? I think it's intriguing. You know, um, we've worked with a lot of different companies. We've looked at a ton of 
of tech companies that are, are coming out sort of out of the woodwork right now. Um, and uh, the Dodgers will continue to go really high level in regards to trying to, to do this. I would say now it's intriguing, but not uh, a ton of benefits at this point. But I think it'll, it'll grow exponentially. And, and, and within years, we'll be able to really get some, some real good uh, tracking issues that can look at things and, and know when to return a guy to play or when to rest him. But I don't, we're not there yet. Um, uh, there probably be people out there that would disagree with that, but from what I've seen, and, and I've seen quite a bit, it's just not there yet. So it's really in its infancy. So say hypothetically you're a head trainer of a team that finds itself up by about eight and a half games in early September, and there's you know no real <laughs> chance of winning the first seed in the playoffs. So you're basically playing for home field in the division series and not much else. If you went to your team and said, hey, why don't we just rest all the regulars pretty much cons- constantly for the next three weeks, get everybody healthy, give them about five days at the end of the year to rev back up, uh, but use all of our, you know, call-ups to basically play out the rest of this season, not really worried about losing anything. Mm-hmm. Where do you get the strongest objection within the organization to that idea? Well, uh, I don't know that I agree totally with what you said in regards to resting guys for multiple days. I think that the the, the balance is uh, keeping players sharp, keeping players uh, going, and resting them at the same time. So, And you have to kind of define what you mean by rest shutting down players and then trying to get them back going uh, is a really difficult thing to do and typically uh, hurts performance. So um, the the way to rest players as they're going down is to definitely give them days off at certain points, but not continuous. And, and we have to separate position players from pitchers when we do this too. So in position players, we like, when we're trying to rest guys, we may give them two at-bats. It almost becomes a spring training type thing where you say, you're going to get two at-bats today, you know, and uh, then we're going to take you out. So you're not playing nine innings, and you're going to have next Tuesday off, that kind of thing. Now, that's typically the manager doing that with the help of the medical department for guys who may have some um, uh, in, uh, minor injuries that they're playing with and trying to get those, those better. Um, the pushback typically is unless you're out of the uh, season altogether, you've been eliminated in September. Um, there's always something to play for. Home field advantage, even if you don't have home field advantage, the second, the first round you might get it. The second round, so all those winning games are are uh, important. So it's a real difficult thing to do. It's not a simple formula in regards to doing this. So in keeping keeping guys fresh and sharp. Pitchers are, are even more difficult, especially starting pitchers. Most starting pitchers uh, have a routine. It's a five-day routine, and if you tell them they're only going to pitch 70 pitches, they they don't like that very much. I kind of like it when you're trying to rest somebody, or if they want to skip a start. At that time of the season, uh, that really throws them off a lot in regards to their performance. Uh, we use this during going down the stretch, used guys uh, going on a six-day, not necessarily a six-day rotation, but giving them extra days. But in fact, you have to rest them through the season. Uh, if you're at the end and you get guys that are totally fatigued, a couple days here and there is not going to make a ton of difference. You really need to, to manage that throughout the whole season. And you definitely see this with starting pitchers. You can keep them on five days. You can go on four-man rotations with days off. Um, you end up paying for that at the end of the season, from my, my 
my opinion. Uh, but you need to give them those extra days where they go on six days when there's a natural day off and try to move that along the staff so they, they still are pitching on a regular basis but don't get extended time off. And is it something where you just go by feel and you say, well, this guy looks tired and maybe he could use a day? Or is it more quantified like you know when a guy plays X number of games in a row, his mm-hmm. stats decrease by X percent and therefore if we... You know, how do you resolve the, how do you tell whether it's better to start your next best guy, even though that hurts you in a way, and, you know, compare that to the benefit you get from your best guy playing at his peak performance when he's in there? Yeah, I think you you can quantify it. And, you know, we use uh, a lot of uh, metrics uh, that that indicate, especially in pitching, if we see a guy starting to become fatigued. You know, all the different metrics that you look at, velocity is the easiest one. But um, typically, we see guys who are fatigued that actually still throw uh, their same velocities or relatively their same velocities. But looking at spin rates, looking at horizontal and vertical movements, um, uh, looking at release points, um, using pitch FX data or TrackMan data, um, that tells us something as we're going along objectively that this guy's getting tired. We also look at previous levels of workload in previous years and how they performed. Um, we talk about Brett Anderson. Uh, Brett Anderson uh, threw 180 innings this year, which is pretty good for a starting pitcher, you know, in his uh, in the third to fourth or fifth uh, slot in the rotation. But he, that's more of innings he's p- pitched cumulatively in the last three years because of injuries. So where does he start to get fatigued, and which ones would you monitor? Now in the minor leagues, we look at that quite a bit and be able to say this guy, you know, if he threw 75 innings this year, he's not going to throw over 100. 110 or 115 innings next year, no matter what. So we're going to build him up. We believe, although we haven't been able to statistically show it yet, is that these big jumps, you know, from year to year can be devastating the previous, the next year out. In other words, jumping from 100 innings to 180 to 210 may be too, too abrupt from an overall conditioning standpoint and being able to stay uh, healthy. Um, you know, uh, that's sort of a takeoff uh, on the so-called Vertucci uh, effect, which really statistically wasn't all that good, but but the, had the concept of building innings. So if all of a sudden a guy is in no man's land in regards to number of innings pitched or number of appearances, then we look really, really closely at that and trying to do that. Now, sometimes guys have to pitch because it's they're, they're healthy and the team is winning and we need to win those games. So it becomes a trade-off. A million decisions every day is what, what it ends up doing. Mm-hmm. So we did want to ask you about Anderson and just about the Dodgers, I guess, rotation building strategy in general, because as a lot of people noted coming into this year, Dodgers acquired a bunch of pitchers who had injury track records and maybe a lot of people would have been scared off by them and in some cases that worked out great, in some cases it didn't, but was the genesis of that a belief that you had maybe a, a better handle on projecting injuries or health than other teams and that there was an advantage <laughs> there for you? Well, we like to think that we have a, 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 a better advantage, um, but uh, what, what really happens here in regards to medical risk assessment for me is looking at this like stocks and, and a portfolio. And, you know, you know, there's really some advantages to having high-risk stocks in if they get high rewards. And But 
it, but it really depends on what kind of portfolio you want. You want a real high risk one where you have a lot of high risk, or you have a, you know a few risks that you're taking um, that you have ideas of what you're going to do with that player if if and when he uh, gets hurt. Um, you know, so there are there are great comeback stories that of players who had devastating injuries who have been out of the game several years and come back and. And they've done well. Um, nobody really talks about the other 25 that did that and didn't come back. Um, so you have to look at that. Uh, Brett Anderson was unique, and I think it's been well talked about um, with the number of injuries he had really starting way back in 2011 when he had Tommy John surgery and a series of injuries that derailed really his career, um, including uh, you know um, a back surgery at the end of, of 2014. So what most teams do and what we do and what I do is a player will come on the radar from the front office and they'll say, we're interested in Brett Anderson. Okay. Um, and what I do is do a medical risk assessment based on histories, based on using a lot of different metrics of looking at his, uh, his, uh, consistency or lack thereof, or where he's going there. Strikeout rates are big. If you have a, you know, a high strikeout rate and all of a sudden you don't, is you know, how does that affect the velocity? Is the velocity caused by the injury or that type of thing? You also have to know about outcomes of certain injuries. Um, and obviously, Tommy John is the most talked about and the most studied of all the injuries. So you have this idea that you know, 67 to 83 percent of all Tommy John's come back. So this guy's having Tommy John surgery is a pretty good probability to come back. How do they do when they come? back or oh, they all pitch pretty decently at least come back to their level um and you know when they do come back they have about a 57 percent chance of going back on the dl um at some point in their career so you kind of know that going ahead um brett was interesting because he had a combination of different injuries um and uh, uh i don't think you really have to be a, a rocket scientist or a medical expert to look at Brett knowing that coming in 2015, he was a significantly high medical risk. Um, and he, just based he, on had lost, he had lost velocity and strikeout rate, which are, you know, as you just yes. mentioned, in addition to all the, the lost time. Yeah. yeah. He sort of had it all, really. And <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm running through the medical risk assessment, I think I can talk about this because I've talked to Brett about it. And is that it's one of those that you're doing in the middle of the night because they need it the next morning and about two o'clock in the morning, your wife hears you screaming because you're going, Oh my God, you know, this is, this, this guy's there's no chance he's going to stay healthy. But in Brett's particular case, you had to step back from the trees and actually look at the forest and, uh, and understand each particular tree is that Tommy John surgery, he came back from, but then he had two different separate fractures, one in his foot and one in his finger. Um, and, uh, the Oakland A's, uh, actually found some, uh, issues with his vitamin D deficiencies and fixed that. And so he was having a little problems with that, that got corrected. He had not had a problem with those, but they took a lot of time to heal. And then he came back with Colorado and then he, you know, on one pitch, uh, blew out a disc in his low back and had, had to have surgery. So when we look at each one of these individually uh, and separate them out before you put them all together, you see that each one of these is highly recoverable within themselves and have a high uh, outcome of, of success. The Tommy John does. The fractures heal. Either they healed or they didn't heal, and we uh, had his medical records, and they will see that they healed fine and everything was good. Uh, and then he was in the middle of his rehab on 
his back surgery. And looking specifically at his back surgery and doing research on back surgeries and baseball players, we knew that he had, for just to throw out a number that happens to be true, 89.5% chance of coming back and performing well uh, as a pitcher. Well, so if you step back and look at that, you say, this actually, this guy is a high risk cumulatively, but I see a scenario where he stays healthy. And because of each individual taken and that he's recovered from the previous three and was recovering from the fourth. Um, so when you looked a little deeper, and when I read my medical, my medical uh, risk assessment on him, I said he's a high risk. But there is a scenario here. There's a, a nice scenario that says he he does have a chance if all these things line up perfectly, and it's not unreasonable to think they can. And then the front office takes that and decides where that fits in the puzzle of the 25-man roster and the five-man rotation. And they have to then decide what that risk is worthwhile um, and whether that particular piece is worth a high risk health-wise but a high reward. And that one worked out. And so uh, that one sort of fell into place and, and was real, real nice to see Brett be able to do that. So when, when you guys made that move and some of your other off-season moves um, for players who had some injury histories, when Ben and I talked about what was guiding these decisions, there were kind of three possibilities. One was that you had a different risk assessment or a better risk assessment than some other teams. One was that you had more tolerance for risk than other teams. Yes. And the third was that you had uh, perceived or identified your training staff as being more likely to keep these players healthy, either in the way you use them, the resources you put into your training staff that you had available to you. Was the third one a factor? Do you feel like, I guess in a bigger question, do you feel like you guys were able to build something in your training staff uh, that was able to set you apart from maybe the median major league team, or are most teams still kind of clustered in a fairly small range uh, on that on that stuff? Well, it's hard. To, that, that's a real hard question. You know, I, I think you'd have to ask our front office in regards to what they thought about the medical staff. I mean, you know, uh, you ask me. I think we have the best medical staff there is in baseball, and I, I do think there's a cluster of very good ones. Um, and uh, I think uh, when you start looking at medical staffs um, that are, are varied in the professional levels, athletic training, physical therapists, uh, high-performance coaches and strength coaches, and how they blend together it is really, really important. Um, and uh, I think also looking at medical records in a more objective fashion, uh, understanding the research that's out there, the medical research that's out there, but also understanding the the, the metrics and the, uh, what all those do in relations to in relationship to medicine. Um, when people do fantasy football or baseball, they're looking at all these stats and they look at it like, can that guy you know give me number of points in the fantasy in my fantasy game? We look at the the metrics are totally different. And we look at different changes in the metrics uh, that that may lead us down the, the path of a guy with an impending doom injury coming up, or did he recover from that? Where was his Where was his numbers two years ago before the injury? Where are they now? And they're going through. So I think all those factors, and and the fourth factor that we didn't mention is mitigating risk. How do you mitigate these risks? Well, that's a lot in the contracts. And uh, really smart GMs um, and front offices will will mitigate that risk and say, "Hey, listen, you're a high risk, but we think you're going to do well. Share some of that risk. Let us let us 
give you a lower base and higher incentives. And if you stay healthy, then you make all the money you want. And, you know, maybe we don't want to go four years. Maybe we want to go three years. Of course, the market has a lot to do with that. But there are ways to mitigate your risk. It's harder to do, but I think it's still a factor that goes into it. So, and reward the player for sharing the risk. So Baseball Prospectus' projection system, Pakoda, has percentile projections. So uh, a 10th percentile projection is, you know, the player is terrible and he has terrible stats, worse than you'd ever think. And then 90% is everything goes right and he excels and he's an MVP. So coming into this year, when you were building that risk assessment on Brett Anderson, what percentile would pitching 100 80 innings have been for him? I mean, you know, like what probability would you have assigned to him actually making 31 starts? Well, <laughs> this is where we're, we're not, well, not where we need to be in regards to really getting this more objectively in percentages. You know, I think that um, probably at the very beginning of this, uh, I would give him a 25% chance of not making it uh, to the DL. Uh, I, I thought he had a pretty good chance to stay, stay healthy, but I didn't think he would be able to throw 180 innings effectively mm-hmm. the way he did, because uh, I thought the number of innings he had pitched in the previous three years was not enough uh, to keep his endurance going and, and, and the sharpness that he required at the end of the season. Uh, so uh, I think he, I, I would have given him about 25% chance mm-hmm. of being able to do what he did. So, so that means a 75% chance that I thought he couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 25% was based, probably went from 10%. Originally, when I looked at it, at 10% to 25% because then I looked at uh, each individual injury and, and painted a scenario, at least for myself, that he could stay healthy. I think that, um, and I have to go back, and I have written notes to myself on this stuff. I haven't done it this this uh, season yet, but uh, of what I really thought, because it's easy to say now, oh, I knew absolutely. Right. Okay, there's no doubt. Everybody thought doubted him, but I'm the one who did <laughs> thought he, he was going to be okay, and that's just yeah. you know you know how that goes. It's not true. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I did tell Brett that at, at the end of the season when he got his 180th inning, I said that I'd never thought so. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's the guy too that you have to make sure you classify correctly and not take it over to another guy and say, "Well, we hit with Brett Anderson. How about Joe Snow here, who you know is coming off this terrible injury and, and hasn't played in three years and, and that kind of stuff." And so you can't transfer anecdotally that whim, if you will, to other people because then you end up um, um, using the, the analogy of blackjack heading on seventeen all the time. I mean, just because you got a four didn't mean that that was right for all the other cards that come up with 17. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, last question you mentioned when I got in touch with you that this was a record year for injuries based on disabled list numbers. So why is that? Does that reflect, mm. uh, is, you know, is that an accurate reflection of the state of injuries in baseball? And if so, why are they up? And now that you are unattached, what will you be turning your attention to primarily? Well, I think, um, no, first of all, the disabled list, this is this quick disclaimer on the disabled list. It's not an injury database. It's really a roster manager's tool for the 25-man roster as well as the 40-man roster. And so there are definitely in, uh, errors in that and flaws in the system itself. But what's really valuable is that it's been consistent since 1989 uh, so historically, the rules haven't changed. The strategies really haven't changed either. So uh, 
from a historic standpoint, you really can kind of see trends. You can't, you don't pick one year or five years. I look at 10 year trends, um, and seeing what's going on. And, um, since 2007, uh, injuries have definitely been going up. Uh, there's some blips of down, but mostly the trend is definitely up. And, and that trend since 1998 is statistically significant. So we run it through stats to show that it's just not uh, by chance. So what we look at um, really in the DL is how many times players are pl- placed on the DL and how many d- uh, DL days are lost uh, for this. And um, both of those were records this year for of all time. Um, you know, 536 placements on the DL. Um, the previous record was 529. There's only been four seasons. There's been over 500. They've all been in the last six years. Uh, for the first time ever, the DL days went over 30,000 DL days. So if you have 30 teams, that's 1,000 day, DL days per year per team. Um, so that average is higher than it's ever been in regards to that. And then, and in, in just cost the cost of lost wages is significantly over six hundred million dollars lost this year. So, uh, all these are things going up. So, uh, these are stats that are easily found in regards to the disabled list. Actually, the disabled list uh, undervalues the, the the numbers are undervalued. They're they're really higher than that as far as lost days. Mm-hmm. Um, and Major League Baseball's uh, injury surveillance system kind of shows that. So these are this is almost the tip of the iceberg in regards to lost time on players. Uh, now that now the the key question is okay, great that's were great or terrible. Um, why? Well, that's sort of what the research is about. Uh, we've seen an increase uh, in the in the number of DL days because of Tommy John surgery. We definitely saw an increase starting really in 2011 in the number of uh, major league pitchers who were uh, undergoing Tommy John, which take a lot of rehab. Uh, so uh, that lost time was somewhat understandable at that point. The number of uh, Tommy Johns has leveled up and actually decreased a little bit, still way higher than it was before, but, but uh, that's one reason. And um, But I think generally people are being hurt more. That's kind of the, the, the bottom line to that. What we need to find out is uh, where these are specifically. Um, Shoulder and elbow make up about 53 to 55% of all the lost time. That that shouldn't surprise anyone. It's a throwing sport. Um, but, you know, how does it relate to from relievers to starters and position players and those type of things? And um, uh, we're losing more time on the pitchers than we had before on the average DL times. Uh, and looking at that, um, are we, uh, are, is our strength and conditioning program uh, correct? Um, is it too easy? Is it too hard? Is it not accurate? Uh, are these guys actually doing the programs that we want? Uh, and that you have to look at that. Uh, are the medical people getting on top of this? Or are we letting people play too long with an injury that eventually has to put them on the disabled list? And then the other things are 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 teams using the disabled list more for different reasons. Uh, one, resting players. Uh, there's been talk. Uh, generally, I, I think there's been several articles where teams may want to put a, play, a pitcher on a disabled list for two weeks to give him a break in the middle of the season. Um, you know, not looking for 34 or 35 starts, but looking for 30 or 31 quality starts. And is that is that a reasonable thing to do? Um, and whether players uh, are moved on the disabled list, that probably shouldn't be. 
uh, we can look at the stats that way and find out that actually the so-called phantom DL doesn't occur any more than it ever has. It's been consistent throughout the time the DL's been there. But So it's not really that. And again, this is sort of what I'm pushing me to more of the research is I don't know the reason why. Um, and uh, But I do know it's affecting wins and losses. And I know it's affecting teams. And we need to have a better grasp on this. And the only way you do is by studying it harder and looking at different aspects of it and trying to figure out how functionally you can put that into play and still have players on the field. All right. Well, we hope that the Dodgers' loss is Major League Baseball's gain and that you have more time to (laughs) figure out why all this is happening and how it can be stopped. But thank you for coming on and giving us an update. All right. Great. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks again to Stan Conti for joining us. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And we hope that you will rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And support our sponsor, the Play Index at Baseball Reference. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And we'll be back with one more show this week tomorrow. 